Hello, and thank you for joining us from wherever you are. This is the SPS Replay Podcast from the New York University School of Professional Studies Student Council, featuring our professors, alumni, and members of the community. Every Wednesday at noon, we gather to hear about their career, their journey so far, and the story of how they got here. This week, we are joined by Kim St. Omer. Akim has spent over 20 years in education, working at various institutions from private charter schools to nonprofit organizations, where he has always been focused on the intersection between equity and education. He currently serves as the Program Administrator of Student Engagement at NYU School of Professional Studies. And prior to his arrival at NYU, he was the Director of DEIA at the Girl Scouts of Greater New York, where he served as the organization's thought leader on issues related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. The original session was recorded on Zoom and was hosted by Martin Ma. Okay, hi everyone, and so glad to see you all here today. Before we get started, I would like to recap on what is High Series. High Series is our lunch series of how I got here that changes, that engages industry leaders, alumni, and our prominent members of the SBS community in a conversation moderated by one of our own SBS students. Conversation will be geared towards the speakers, professional journey, their struggles, their triumphs, advance and everything in between to find out how they got here. And now I would like to introduce you to our moderator for today. It's Martin. Martin, welcome. Thank you. Hey guys. Hello everyone. Happy MLK week. My name is Martin. I'm a sophomore studying hotel and tourism management, and I'll be the moderator for today's high series featuring Akeem Sin Omer. Before we to be with you, Martin, start, I'd like to take the floor and thank everyone who attended today's talk, especially our amazing events chair committees, Studi, Hana, Yanni, and Alona. You guys worked really hard for this to happen. Akeem, I'll start with a quick bio and we'll start. Does that sound good? Sounds great. All right. So Akeem was born, raised, and currently resides in Brooklyn. He's spent the last 20 years in various institutions, from chartered independent schools to nonprofit organizations. His work has been at the intersection of equity and education. He currently serves as a program administrator, student engagement at NYU School of Professional Studies. Prior to his arrival at NYU, he was director of DEIA at the Girl Scouts of Greater New York, where he served as the organization's saw leader and on issues related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. In his spare time, he's an avid reader and podcast listener. So feel free to add to one of my to my brief introduction, Akeem. And one of my first questions after your introduction is tell us about your story and what makes you want to pursue in the fields that you were and you are in today. Thanks a lot, Martin. I think you covered pretty much most of the key points in my bio. One thing I will add is that I am the oldest of eight, and I think family, and ultimately, I think the work that I find myself doing really comes back to that ability to connect with younger people. I always tell the joke that growing up, if I didn't learn how to connect with younger people, I'd be kicked out of my house because so many of us. So I think that that's kind of where I got my energy from in terms of working with young people. My story is really interesting in that I grew up, born and raised in Brooklyn, like you mentioned, went to high school and middle school not too far from NYU. So I know the community and know the neighborhood fairly well. My my story is really interesting in that I was born in a primarily black and brown neighborhood. At the time when I was born, my neighborhood was about 90, 95 percent black and Hispanic. By the time 
and, and I spent my first 10 years in the public school system in Brooklyn. My grandmother at the time was a public school teacher. She ended up being a kindergarten teacher for over 35 years. So I kind of got into the business of education through kind of seeing what she experienced and learning from her. At around the age of 10, I moved out from the neighborhood that I was in to my grandfather's house. And at that same time, I enrolled in a private school in New York City. So I had the chance to see really two different worlds, a world of public school where resources were pretty slim to this world of excess in private school where, where opportunities and resources were so abundant that it really made me, even at a really young age, notice the differences and notice how myself as a Black person, a Black man, in these, a Black boy in these spaces were really challenged those institutions and ultimately challenged me to want to help the institutions be more equitable and diverse. And that's kind of where the, the foundation started for me professionally is by going to these different kinds of schools. So that by the time I got to college, I ended up going to college in Boston, graduate of Boston College. By the time I got to college, I was really able to take what I learned educationally and for my grandmother and from the neighborhoods that I lived in and went to school to really try to make the institution of BC at the time better than it was. Um, and that kind of culminated in all the professional spaces that I navigated after that. So that I'm always thinking in the spaces that I am in, how do I make this space better for those who A, look like me, or B, look like the person that the institution wasn't founded for or in mind? In America, because of the impact of racism and prejudice, a lot of educational institutions aren't really designed with the thought of what does this space look like for a non-white person, a non-white cisgendered person. So I'm always thinking of how do I bring in more people who look like me? How do I make the table that we all sit at look broader? And how do we bring about more perspectives and audiences so that the spaces that we're navigating are more reflective of society at large and the society that I think we're going forward to as we notice the changing landscapes of demographics in the United States? That's, that's awesome, Kim. Thank you for sharing that. And it's really amazing that you have these perceptions at such a young age and not only having these perceptions, but also, you know, having a way for you to want to take actions and actually do it. So I want to circle back to your college life in BC. So you said you do want to make a space for other people that you feel might not be having the same, getting the same treatment as other people. So what are some things in BC you specifically do to achieve your goal? Yeah, when I got to Boston College in 2002, it's almost hard for me to believe that the first time I stepped onto campus was 21 years ago. But I think when I got there, I noticed that I was aware of the history of Boston College. Boston College has a history of being an Irish Catholic institution. Most of the time when people think about Catholic universities in America, the, the two universities that come up are Notre Dame and Boston College. So I knew going into, into that space that it was grounded in a religious underpinning that was really important to the trajectory and history of the school. But I also got there knowing that the percentage of African-American students at the time was about 5% in, of the entire campus. So I knew clearly that I was privileged to be in the space, but that with my privilege, I had to help figure out a way to make the numbers of students who look like me and ultimately faculty and staff members that look like me bigger and broader. So I started at BC working in the Office of Admissions as a freshman. It was my work-study job. So in that space, I had a chance to really connect with the admissions office, really help them think about initiatives and ideas of bringing more diverse students to campus. Did that work for four years. And in addition to that work, I also did a lot of student leadership. I was on student government, sang in the gospel choir. I did a lot of things that really connected me to community because what I realized quickly was that in order for me to make any kind of effective change, I had to be embedded in the 
community. A lot of times when people kind of step on faith and really do this kind of work, they're not necessarily connected to the communities that they're trying to impact. But I was not only part of the community, I knew that I had to get deeper into the community so that people would believe in what I was saying and doing, and that I would also have the backing of various groups. So really for me, it was about building a community, building a coalition of folks who had the same mindset, even if they didn't look like me, had the same mindset of wanting to see a diverse campus and figuring out really effective ways to do that, but also holding the administration in the university you know, to, to the standards and the beliefs that they specifically said was important to them through their Catholic mission, right? So going back to the mission of the institution, the mission and their beliefs, and then really connecting that to where we see the university and see the institution going further. So really connecting the mission, the goal, and what they want to do to where we are now. So a lot of, so a lot of it involved really being in the community, figuring out how to make co effective coalitions and then bringing those coalitions to the table when big conversations were happening. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Yeah, no, I was just... <clears throat> BC obviously is a very known Catholic school. And then even today, the only 4% of the entire student population is comprised of African-American students, mm -hmm. while 61% of college students is predominantly, predominantly white, white students. So mm -hmm. during your time, you know, in, in college, you said you work as, as a as student work. So what are some of the obstacles that you have faced while working in BC or even just as a student in BC? Uh, well, you know, the joke that I always tell people is that I'm from New York City and Boston is a very interesting space historically for people of color. The history of Boston in America is really interesting when you think about busing students from neighborhoods during the 70s and some of the issues around race really still permeates into Boston today. At the time that I was in Boston 20 years ago, it was a really fascinating time culturally for the state. It was around the same time that marriage equality became legal in Massachusetts. This was also the time where I entered school, believe it or not, right before the advent of social media. So by the time I was a junior, I remember getting my, my email, my Facebook invite email from somebody from Harvard because this brand new platform called Facebook was being created. So I really had a chance to see from the ground up how social media and connecting various groups through the form of social media, but also doing it on the ground at the institution that I was at, how we can kind of combine those efforts. So I think it was really a cool time to be there because it really allowed me to see what grassroots organizing looked like on the ground, but then it also allowed me to see the beginnings of what social media and the impact of that could look like as one kind of dug into that. So I think it was it was a cool time to be at school, both culturally, but also for the for the time that we were in because of the, the advent of technology and social media. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, so right now that you're working here at NYU <clears> again, which is another very different school than Boston College, you know, different cities and everything. So how do you think your experience right right now, working as a program administrator in a different college, just as prestige, if not more, compared to your your time in Boston? It's different in that it, it is always different when you're going to an institution versus when you're working at an institution. There's a level of separation between church and state, if you will, that needs to be needs to always be mindful. I always have to be thoughtful of the fact that I am representing NYU as an employee. But I think one of the things that people know about me from the jump when they meet me is that I'm always going to push the button and push the envelopes for people to think broader and wider about what they have and what they're doing. So I'm always thinking, even in my space now at, at, at NYU in this role, you know, how do I make the, the experiences that the students are having, this, the experience that staff and faculty are having, how do I bring those different perspectives together to have really con big conversations and collective engagement around that? Because I think it's really easy, especially in this 
hybrid form of school and work that we're having to be really siloed in our bubbles. We can kind of sit in where we are and not really hear perspectives or see perspectives of other people. So figuring out ways to be effective in that, but also holding, I think, the institution to, to account when the institution may not be doing the best that it can be doing. So I'm, I'm always one of those people that believe in the impact of working from the inside to make effective change. But I always tell people, even though I'm on the inside, I'm always cognizant of the fact that these institutions were not created for people that look like me. So I have to, while I'm part of the institution, really try to figure out ways to, co to create effective change so that other people who look like me and who may not look like me can feel comfortable being at the institution in either the role that I'm in or in whatever role they find themselves in eventually. Yeah, for sure. No, thank you for really paving the path for the future. And, and also, you know, while still remembering, you know, your mission and why you're here, which is a big reason that, you know, we're, we're really happy to have you here working working with us. So let's talk about your professional career a little bit being as the DEIA, which stands for Diverse, Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Racial Justice Director at the uh, Girl Scout Greater New York. So can you run us through um, a little bit of experience about that? Sure. I started at the Girl Scouts in 2019, so right before the pandemic hit. So I started in October of 2019 in a very different role, really figuring out ways to connect the organization to different academic institutions in New York City. So my role went virtual in March of 2020 as COVID began. And by May and June of 2020, after the murder of George Floyd, our CEO held a meeting and you know it was very clear that much like most other institutions in, in the world, or in America specifically, we didn't have the right language and we didn't know what to say about what we were seeing on TV. So I sent her an email not too long after, after her remarks. And from that email came the suggestion that I lead an equity task force within the organization. And that task force primarily was assigned to look at the different departments in the organization and offer suggestions on how the, the programs or the departments could be more equitable in their practices. Over the course of the next six or seven months, it became clear that in order for the work to really live through the organization, there needed to be a full-time director of DEIA. So the board approved that funding in the beginning of 2021, sorry, end of 2020, beginning of 2021, and I applied for the role of DEIA director and got that and began that role in August of 20, at the end of 2021. And it was a really interesting opportunity for me to see the impact of equity work and on, on organizations that have been trying to do the work, but not really knowing where to do the work. I think the Girl Scouts is a really old organization, one of the oldest organizations in America, over 100 years old. So in order to really do equity work, it involved a lot of thinking about how do you dismantle the systems that have created, that have, whether intentionally or unintentionally, been difficult for folks to navigate from an equity lens? And then how do you kind of change some of those some of those thought processes? So for me, in my first couple of months, it was important for me to figure out how do we make the um, executive suite more diverse. At the time, the executive suite was pretty much dominated by white women and had been that way for a long time. So my goal was to bring in a couple of new people because there were a couple of vacancies at the time that were intentionally diverse hires. We ended up hiring an Afro-Latina woman from the Bronx, another Afro-Latina woman who ended up becoming part of that C-suite. And it became very clear once we brought the, the new perspectives to the table that it was going to shake it, shake things up a bit. So my work, I think, ultimately was how do I effectively shake up the spaces that need to be shaken? And then also, how do I, as a person of color, be mindful of the experiences that my staff were having that may have been very different than experiences that other members were having, but might have been the same? So I always tell people when I took the role that my 
main goal was to be the voice for those who felt like their voices weren't being heard. And there were multiple ways in which I did that, whether it was through surveys, whether it was through town halls, whether it was through book conversations, where I just feel really important for me to figure out ways to make the organization feel as if it was representing the population that it was truly representing. And the, the population of Girl Scouts in New York City is primarily black and brown girls throughout New York City. So if our organization wasn't mirroring that, then I, I thought that there were some gaps that I could have really stepped in and helped work. And I think it was it was a great opportunity. I learned a lot. Um, I think I, I learned how to navigate different conversations in different spaces. And I think I also learned the value of being authentic in spaces. I am a person that I lead with who I am. The way I, the way I am on this conversation is very similar to the way I am with my friends on a weekend having a cocktail. So, that, so I always figure out ways to bring myself to the table because when I'm able to do that, that other people will feel empowered to do the same and bring their authentic selves to the table. And when you get authenticity at a table, then you really kind of get the chance to do some real work yeah absolutely because you know once uh, sometimes you know the actions are much more much more impactful when you're able to you know get your voice heard and then that's clearly what you have done you know putting yourself out there you know being being a leader being able to provide for others so you said you did join become the organization around 2019 so what are some of the actions that the organization as well as yourself individual did during the black lives matter movement Right. We definitely made sure that our social media reflected the feelings of our um, staff and our students. You know, one of the things that really made Girl Scouts a space that I wanted to be in was that it was a girl-led organization. So a lot of the initiatives that the organization were undertaking were really driven by our Girl Scouts who were actually the ones, you know, selling our cookies, participating in our programs. But really trying to make sure that our social media and some of our policies and procedures really reflected the girls that we were serving. Um, also, I think it was super important that at the time we were just not only focusing on the Black Lives Matter movement, but we were also focusing on around this time, the Asian hate conversation that was occurring in New York City. So really making sure that while it was important for us to focus on our black and brown girls because they were super valuable to the conversation, that we're also bringing in other marginalized communities as well. Because I think what, what happens sometimes in America is that groups of people who are non-white you end up getting in these very weird spaces where they become tribalized. So if you're not talking about the black and brown issues, we're not really going to have the conversation with the Asian folks over here. If we're not talking about the Latinx experience, we're not we're not connecting with the other demographics. So figure out ways to connect everybody, because I think the beautiful part and also the challenging part is that discrimination and inequality in America feels very similar in whatever community that is being um, discriminated against. So really figuring out ways to make everyone feel like their view and their point was part of the conversation, but then also figuring out ways to bring in programming and effective conversations. So I was bringing in folks from outside of the organization who can speak to the topics that we were discussing. We were creating on platforms for Girl Scouts to actually lead conversations within the organization. We were helping Girl Scouts actually talk to members of the board about some of this topic. So it was really from not just the, the bottom up, but it was also from the top down. So I thought that that was really one of the, some of the major things that I did while I was there. Yeah, <clears throat> absolutely. And thank you for really bringing up the AAPI hate because, mm -hmm. you know, during the time, <clears throat> sorry, yeah, as a, um, I also have uh, been working with a local newspaper to report the AAPI hate, but then to be honest, like for my personal experience as an Asian male, is that sometimes, you know, people are just like, they just like, they just feel like it's a burden for them to even to speak up. And sometimes they just feel like, you know, by not speaking up, they're like, just like, just 
trying to have the problem as time goes away they feel like their problem will go away but sometimes they fail to realize that the only way for you for other people to see about see about what you're doing and see about the things that you're going through is to speak up is to bring up the attention to the public and i think that's that's something that's really important and really for us to you know now we're here we're here at new york university you know we have the resources we have everything that you know that we have our peers our, our professors and the only like we have all these resources so why why don't we just utilize them to to speak up and then to bring the attention to the to the public and um so yeah while we're talking about your experience so how did you navigate your road during the pandemic as you said like in 2019 that's when that's when it first started was there like a lot of restrictions or was there just um a lot of difficulties everything that I did professionally before 2019 completely shifted after. Uh, back up a little bit and kind of give you my thought process as I kind of navigated these spaces. I remember this is now 10, 15 years ago when I first started working. I remember having a conversation with a colleague and I was like, this whole being in an office five days a week thing really is not the best way to work. And I was saying that again, early 2010s. And and I was like, yeah, we should also start thinking about like equity and diversity in some of the spaces that we navigate. So, and, and the conversation advanced a couple months ago, the same friend hit me up and he was like, yo, you really were like ahead of the curve in really talking about some of the same issues that we're presented with today. So when we, when we went virtual in 2020, I remember, I don't know if you guys remember the day when everything kind of closed down. So you know, I'm cleaning up my desk and I'm moving things and I'm packing a box and I'm looking at colleagues and I'm like, I'll see y'all in about six to 12 months. And I remember colleagues laughing at me and they were like, what do you mean six to 12 months? I'll see you in two weeks. And I stopped and I was like, no, I will see you all in about six to 12 months. And they looked at me, they go, why, what do you, why do you think so? And I go, because I did the thing that I think we often fail to do. And that is looking back on history. So what I literally did was Googled pandemic 1918 to 1920 to kind of see what it was. And all the research that I was getting was that it was going to be a 12 to 36 month process. So I was like, let me shoot on the low end for 12 months and then we'll see how it goes. A couple of weeks after we went virtual, we, we got on calls and those same people that were kind of chuckling and laughing were like, oh, we'll probably see you in about six to 12 months. But I think that goes to a bigger point. It's really important in whatever space you navigate to really do due diligence and research on not only the role you are in, but the history that in which you navigate. No one would have thought that we would have gotten a global pandemic in the middle of an election, in the middle of a racial uprising. But if you look at history of the world, every hundred years, there's a pandemic of some sort, right? So if we go back to the history that we have, then it can kind of inform us on how do we navigate the particular spaces that we occupy now. And it doesn't always have to be about the pandemic. It could be about racism. Let's look at the history of racism. How does that manifest itself in various spaces and various countries? It could be the thing that we use to kind of navigate now, and it'll also tell us how do we navigate the future thing. So I always tell people, really be stewards of your own experience. But do the research that you need to do and make sure the research is from reputable sources. It's really easy now to click on a website and it'll say something, but that website isn't a reputable source. Make sure the research that you're doing is reputable, but also make sure you realize that the things that we're experiencing now, people have experienced in the past. It may look different depending on the space we navigate. It may look different depending on the time or the availability of technology, but it's not that different when we really dig down and, and, and dig deep. So that was one of the things that really helped me during the pandemic was that I was able to really look back 
and then apply those things to where we were now in, in, a, in a, an effort to look forward, but that it was also something that, while new to us, wasn't new to history. Just like racism might feel new to us, but isn't new to history. Just like prejudice might feel new to us, but isn't new to history. And using that as a really uh, a scope and a framework of how I navigate the particular spaces. So even now, you know, work is still hybrid for many people. How do we think about the spaces that we're navigating to make those spaces look better and more functional for everybody? But then how are we thinking of this of, of those spaces going forward? What does work look like going forward? And I'm always mindful of we can't be stuck where we are and not looking forward to where we're going. Yeah, absolutely. I, I remember that one of my like favorite quotes kind of saying something along the line that like those who do not remember the past, they're kind of condemned to repeat it. Mm-hmm. And that's exa- exactly what, what we talked about here. And also being do, doing your due diligence, you're able to, you know, identify the situation and then assess them so you can better prevent them in the, in the future. So, yeah, now we're talking about because right now is this MLK week. And so I would like to kind of have a different direction of mm-hmm. our conversation. My first question uh, about the legacy of Dr. King is that uh, how does Dr. Martin Luther King's legacy impact your career and personal path? You know, it's hard to be in the United States and not from a very young age hear about Martin Luther King Jr. I do worry that with the new focus on changing the way curriculums are looking like in schools across the country, that some of that might might get whitewashed, no pun intended, in, in the course of teaching um, history. But growing up, Martin Luther King was always kind of like the figure, even though he was he had passed away by the time I was born, he was still a figure in my in my upbringing. Um, I remember, you know, my grandmother would have a picture of him, you know, over the kitchen wall. This is a very stereotypical thing that Black people always have a picture of Jesus, Martin Luther King, and now Barack Obama. You find one of those three in every Black house at some point. But he was always a presence in my life. I remember being young, asking my grandmother, you know, to tell me about her experiences, you know, growing up in New York during the mid to mid 60s or the early 60s when King was was present. And, you know, she really made the experience of growing up with King as part of her physical life really big for me. So I always believe that King is the best American that has ever been produced. I think the words of King and the works and the impact that he's had on the American history and also the American present is irrefutable, probably the best American that America that America has ever produced. But I think what has happened with King over the past really decade, decade and a half is that his true essence has become very much whitewashed, that we forget that King was not popular by a lot of people when he was alive because the things that he was saying was so, quote unquote, radical, right? But we don't think of King as the radical person that he was. We tend to think about a Malcolm X as the radical one. But when you really dig down and really look at King's work over the last couple of years of his life, especially, there were much more similarities between him and Malcolm X than were not. So I think what, what I always try to do is make people realize that King is always going to be part of the American conversation and folklore, but that we have to do true justice to King by talking about who he really was. While he was a man of peace, a lot of the work that he that he was thought about was really radical for its time. And one might even say it's still radical for the time that we're existing in today. So I'm always thinking of the fact that we have to push forward and really lean into the radicalism to get any effective change done. And while King might, you know, have been the, uh, you know, the, the thing that we think about when we think of the I have a dream speech, there was more to him than that. And he was much more radical than I think we are aware of. 
But I also think that the reason we're not aware of his radicalism is that it 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 makes a very nice story in America, right? I, I think about sometimes Muhammad Ali. And Muhammad Ali, very similar to King at the same time, very progressive, really calling about social justice, really pushing America to be better. But Muhammad Ali didn't really become popular until he was unable to speak, right? So when you think about the fact that Muhammad Ali, as popular as he was at the time when he was pushing against the Vietnam War, his popularity really, really, really became evident when he was unable to speak. So what does that say about the stories that we put on people, the history that we bring on people when the fact that he became more popular when his voice became non-existent versus when his voice was existent and we we were pushing back against him. So it's super important, I think, if we think about King, Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali, or all other members of civil rights movements, whether it's for Black folks or for other folks of color, that the true essence of those people are the radicalism that they navigate so that the spaces that we are in now can become better than the spaces that they were in when they were doing that work. Definitely. And so do you think, also like, as yeah, before my next question, I kind of want to see the how, like, you know, people are using different angles to approach approach the problem. Like, for example, you know, Ali, he kind of trans he using sports and all, all these different directions. But do you think going back to your point about how uh, Dr. King has been whitewashed like, like nowadays? But do you think that like Dr. King now has become like a mere superficial image or like representation when people want to talk about racial justice and people forgot to go more in depth on who? what Dr. King actually wants to believe and the works that he's done. And they just kind of just focusing on, you know, I have a dream speech as a superficial way for them to, to get to the racial justice. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think it's really easy to focus on this one. I have a dream speech while ignoring some of his larger statements, you know, even thinking about his letters from a Birmingham jail, you know, even thinking about nowadays, you know, we talk about Memphis because of the tragic killing that we saw by police officers in Memphis a couple weeks ago. Martin Luther King was in Memphis the day before he died. Right. So so we have to be very mindful of the fact that he was fighting for the same things that we're fighting for now. But also we have to be very mindful that King was not a figure into himself. He was other other people around him that were galvanizing his efforts and his work, whose names we tend to forget because of the nature of history. Right. Especially the black and brown women who were really the ones who were pushing it and, and, and cultivating and making sure that meals were being made, churches were being organized. Uh, marches were being held. There were a lot of folks on the ground that do that did the hard work so that King could step in and, and really do what he was able to do. So I'm always mindful of the fact that while we talk about King as this one seminal figure, that there's so many others whose names that we will never know because of the nature of history, but who are as just as important in the mission and the goals of Dr. King, just as he, as if he was. So I think it's super important to not only focus on King because he's, he's the seminal figure, but always be mindful of the fact that it takes a community and it takes a movement of people to get the kind of work that he did done. And that we also need to focus on some of them too, because I think their voices and their names and their roles should be leveled up in history just as much as King is. Thank you for bringing up actually the letter to Birmingham Jail, because I think that's something that we, a lot of people that aren't really too familiar with. I just remember that learning about in history class, kind of talk about how Dr. King was saying that how sometimes that the peaceful disobedience to social justice can also be like an appropriate move. Can you go more in depth about how your perception of Dr. King's letter to Birmingham Jail mean to you? So for like for me and also for for our audience here who who might not be familiar with it. What 
The thing that I always think about with letters from a Birmingham jail is not what he actually wrote, but the process in which he went to write it. If I remember correctly, the story is that he wrote the letters from Birmingham jail on newspaper. So he would get an old newspaper. He would write in the margins of that newspaper. And then he would send that out ultimately to one of his friends. And that was how the letter from a Birmingham jail came about. And when you think about the process in which you take a pen and you sit down and you write in the margins and you write and you write and you write in these small spaces to get your thoughts out. And then to come out of that, you have this amazing document. It shows, I really think it shows that the impact of what focus and drive and passion could look like. And it also shows, I think, the concept of what delayed gratification could look like. Because I can imagine, you know, sitting down, just writing this, not sure where it's going to go. And then over time, seeing this thing become bigger than you ever thought it would be. So I'm always mindful of not only what we are in the end, but what we are in the process. And I always try to tell, you know, folks that, you know, I grew up in a time where I'm blessed to say that I grew up half my life before social media was an advent and then half my life when it wasn't. So I understood the value of not everything you want is going to happen like that. It's going to take time and it's going to take effort. It's going to take drive. And I think that's what Letters from a Birmingham jail really represented to me. It, it, it represented the thoughts of a man who had to get his thoughts out. And the only way he could get his thoughts out was by writing in the margins of this newspaper. He wasn't sure what was going to happen to this. He was going to give it off to his friend. He was going to hope it became something. But that became one of the most seminal pieces of literature from the civil rights movement. So I always try to tell people, you know, you might be doing things, expecting the quick results, but sometimes you got to sit in it. You got to sit in the work. You got to sit in the, the, the your thoughts and really write it out and work it out. And ultimately, if you do that, there's something really valuable and beautiful in seeing what sitting in your thoughts and sitting in those moments can really accomplish when you do that. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I think that before, like the reason that he was even in prison is that he was kind of like taking part of like, I think like a nonviolent, like nonviolent demonstration against the racial inequality. And then, and he was just arrested. And I think also going back to your point is that like him able to write the letter also kind of says that sometimes you have to take actions and instead of just waiting for like our judicial system to take action and then just like that's sometimes it's going to take forever and then just like kind of accepting your fate is not always a viable option and then you have to kind of take matter into your own hands you know exactly what dr king did he wrote the letter from from birmingham jail and then and that just kind of marked the beginning of a civil rights movement that is you know, that's very, uh, very impactful for the years to come. So I guess my next question would be, what, what kind of, what are some of the factors that motivate you to become more involved in the nation and how they run certain things? I know, can you kind of talk about how you were growing up in a predominantly Black and Spanish neighborhood, and then you wanted to be in public school and be in private school, you kind of want to, you know, speak out, but also what are the other factors that kind of motivate you to do so? Right. That's a good question. I, I think because I came from a big family, I'm, I was always mindful of the impact of what I did for the next generation of folks. Um, when I say I came from a big family, it was also very multi-generational. So in my life, I my great grandmother is still alive. My grandmother passed away a couple of years ago. There's my mom's generation, uh, my generation and my nieces and nephews. So I've had the chance to see five generations and very few people will ever have the chance to see five generations in their family. And what Seeing those generations has, has helped me over time. She is the impact of history on families, the impact of intergenerational trauma on families, and how do you navigate that? But also 
what, what, has, what has helped me, I think, is I've always put myself in the spaces and places that my family members are in at the time and how that can kind of help change things. I think about my grandmother and my great-grandmother coming to the United States in the, 19, in the 1950s, late 1950s, early 1960s. I think of my grandfather buying a house in Brooklyn, um, one of the first Black men to buy a house in the neighborhood that he was in and ended up becoming a predominantly Black neighborhood. So I'm always thinking of, you know, the impact of history on our present bodies, but also the impact of history on our life trajectory and the trajectories of generations to come or generations behind us. But growing up in that space, I had no choice but to be a social justice person. My grandmother would look at me every day and she was like, what did you do today? What was your impact today? How did you make the world better today? And I think that by doing that from a young age, it just kind of built up this part of me that became what I consider like a servant leader. I always tell people, you know, my leadership and leadership from many people that I know is that we give of ourselves because we understand that our physical bodies and our stories are not as uncommon in the American lore as, as people like to think. The fact that I'm a Black man who came through public school and private school in New York City to end up working in college. It's not a rare story, but it's not oftentimes a story that's heard in American history. We often, oftentimes the statement of history is written by those who experience it, but oftentimes history is not written by black and brown people. It's oftentimes written by white people who have the luxury to, to be the writers. So I'm always trying to tell people, write your own history, navigate your own path, but also really be mindful of the fact that you're human and that you're going to make mistakes. You're going to you know, you know, you're going to go through, you're going to go through life, but also understand that the way you are now is not the way you're going to be five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. Believe it or not, the, the fact that I'm speaking to you like this in the way I am, if you would have asked me to do this when I was a 12 year old in seventh grade, I would not have been able to do it. So it's always, I'm always mindful of the fact that you're not, people are not, in my mind, viewed as the worst part of themselves, I think we're viewed as just life, like life will do what life will do. And we have to learn to take our experiences and not only help ourselves, but ultimately help those around us as well. So I'm always cognizant of that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's really all about control, the things that you can control and then, you know, navigate your own path, write your own, write your own story, because you're the only one who can decide what, what you want to do. And you're the only one that, you know, can decide that what kind of life that you want to live in. And um, as, as you said also as well, that how you have no choice to, but to become a social justice activist, do you think that your siblings kind of also follow your path? And then how do you think that your actions impacted them? I grew up telling my siblings from a very young age, do not follow my path, because if you follow my path, it may not be the path that's for you. I think everybody's path is for them. And when you try to follow other people's experiences and paths and ways of doing things, it may not ultimately end up being the way that you want to do it. So I'm always, always telling people, be the individual that was put on this earth to do what you need to do. You can take things and you can take ideas and suggestions from other folks, but figure out your own path. Because when you figure out your own path and you lean into what that path is, that's when you really become truly who you are. And I think you, you mentioned something about controlling what you can control. What I've always told people is that, and what I've especially realized in the past three years is that we ultimately control nothing. And some people are like, Ooh, what do you mean you control nothing? When you think about life, I consider it like a wave, right? Like you're kind of riding the wave, seeing where the wave is going to drop you off, trying to ride a wave a little further. And ultimately, that's what life is. You can prepare for the wave. You can take all the swim lessons you want. You can know how to backstroke in the water and all that. But life is going to do to you what life will do to you. And at the end of the day, 
when you realize that you don't have much control over anything, I think that is truly when people become free. Because you really realize at that point that all these things, these structures that I put in place to do the thing, to get the degree, to get the job, to get the family, it may not work out in the way that you anticipated it. So when you really lean into the unpredictability of life, I think you lean into not only what is, I think, the beauty of life, but I think it's the beauty of existence. It is the ability to know that whatever happens, I'll be able to face it as it comes and I'll be able to pivot and make sense of it and I'll be able to find a new thing and that I'm not stuck in these rigid boxes that I think society would like to put people in in order to, one, control folks, but also, I think, to control the way we do things. So I'm always cognizant of the fact that we don't control much of anything. And when we realize that we don't control much of anything, that's when we can really be like, okay, let me just live the life that I meant to live and not the one that I prescribed for myself over the course of years. Yeah, that's that's a very interesting perspective, actually. And then I kind of like when you when you said that, kind of also thought about what you said earlier, earlier today, too. Kind of like in life where you kind of go around, you know, going a lot of waves there, you, you kind of you get knocked down and then you came up stand up again but then like when you know, similar things happen again too if you have like a similar wave and you kind of thought about what you did before you kind of learn from your mistakes and as you said do your due diligence never ne- never let history repeat itself so that when you encounter like a similar mistakes you kind of also think about oh yeah what should i do differently this time and then wave after wave you know mistakes after mistakes you kind of become you know, adjusted to your surroundings, adjusted to what you want to do moving forward, kind of, you know, maybe like change the way that you think about things, change the way that you, you know, maybe like ask for help next time or just like all the different things that you've learned from the mistakes. And then at the end of the day, it's maybe there's nothing that you can control, but then at least you can learn from what you failed before and then, you know, move forward, to, move forward to that, to the next to the next one, to the next wave. And then here after year, you just ultimately become, you know, more experienced than you were before. Mm-hmm. Also, yeah, before I forget, if you have any questions, please leave them in the in the chat box. So, yeah, and also I know that you just got here a few months ago. So, but what do you think that from your brief experience here, but how do you think that Dr. King's, Dr. King's value interconnect with, you know, some NYU's, NYU's teaching and philosophy. You know, it's not lost on me that we're having this conversation during NYU's MLK week, which has been, in my experience, I think one of the, before even I got to NYU, one of the like pivotal events that I would think about in New York City is NYU's MLK week. Because oftentimes when you think about MLK in the university setting, you're thinking about it as like MLK day, like you're doing one thing around a day. But to see the institution at NYU really dedicate time, efforts, and treasures to having it be a whole week, I think shows, I think, the impact of MLK and his history and his his impact long-term. But I also think it shows the investment of the institution in making folks remember the value and the role that MLK, MLK played in, in society. I always tell people, you know, when you when you dedicate time, effort, and treasure to something, that, that, that really shows the impact of it. So I think MLK's impact on NYU, MLK's impact on the fact that we're having this conversation today, and it's really, really, really important and valuable. And it's one thing that I hope that the university will always, I think MLK Week needs to be something that will always be had because it, I think really is the, at the essence of what an, a university should do. It's both teaching folks about MLK and his impact. It's both creating new spaces to have bigger conversations on what that looks like now. But I think it also shows the the value of what, what his impact had, not only on New York City, but also on the university. So even though I've only been here a month, I think to, to see 
how the university leans into MLK and to work around what he's done over the past 40, 50 years, I think is super important. Yeah, absolutely. And then this year um, we had like a video on NYU's website, website about how MLK, oh, I thought it was, yeah, it was last year, impacted our legacy. And then I took notes on some of the answers that I, I think I found to be closely related to, you know, what we're talking today. So one student said that, you know, he represented something that we all need to have a little bit inside of us and persistence to keep going. And another student said that MLK made me realize a lot of the privilege that we were given because of the speech he's given, which I think that, you know, everybody has a different perception of what Dr. King's legacy leave them. But ultimately, it's really about, you know, the, le- the legacy and the impact he's lasted to not, not only to our individually, but to, as you said, to the whole institution itself. And how we have a week to to celebrate the value and then the the lessons that that he had left us. So, what are what in your opinion though? What are some of the areas that you think we can improve in terms of celebrate in celebration of Dr. King? It doesn't have to be the MLK Day or MLK Week, but just in general of of the of the things that Dr. King represented. I hope that you know, and, and this is something that I I think about generally. I hope that. The conversations around equity, diversity, equality, all those conversations aren't solely had during that particular time of the year. I think those conversations need to be as natural as asking how the weather is. Uh I am one of those people. and My friends sometimes get me on this. I will just literally break out in the middle of a conversation. Hey, so what do you think about that race incident that happened over there? And people are like, why would you do that? And I tell people that the reason I do that is the more we're comfortable talking about inequality and racism, prejudice, xenophobia, all the isms that make, you know, being in America challenging, the more we're comfortable talking about that, then that's the more comfortable we are in trying to effectively make that change. And so I don't want NYU MLK week to be the only time that the university or the particular schools talk about MLK and his impact. I think those conversations need to be throughout the year, it needs to be throughout the curriculum, it needs to be throughout the extracurricular activities, it needs to be through all the clubs and, and, and activities and, and, and groups that are existence. Because when you talk about it outside of the, the particular time, then you're able to really have that meaningful, those meaningful conversations to affect meaningful change. So I think if NYU kind of thinks about MLK, we, you know, always, I'm always asking, you know, what happens after? What happens in between this particular time that it ends and next year? What does that 12-month gap look like? What are the conversations? What are the activities? What are the stories? How are we making his mission not just talked about during Black History Month or MLK Week, but how are we making his vision live throughout the other course of the 12 months as well? Honestly, in my opinion, is that a lot of people, myself included, that I'm definitely not educated enough, that I'm not exposed enough to all these, like, about race and equity and mm-hmm. inclusion but do you think what are some ways do you think like it's really like up to students for them to, you know, on their own to get get more educated? Or do you think that's really up to or like definitely like a balance of both? But what do you think are some ways for people to get get more educated in those yeah. in lessons? Good question. I think I think you like you said, it is a balance of both. I think there has to be a natural intellectual curiosity from folks that just kind of want to learn these things. And also, I think the university also has a role to play in educating and and creating spaces where folks are learning about about these topics. And, you know, I always think about the international students who are, you know, a part of SPS or just part of the university in general. You know, having an international experience and coming to America and dealing with race from an international student perspective, I can assume that can be super challenging because race in America is super challenging for native born Americans. So I could imagine somebody coming from overseas, kind of stepping into the space, what, like trying to figure out what that means. But I do think that it is incumbent on those folks who are coming here, if you're gonna be part of the American experience, 
do your due diligence to kind of do some research to kind of figure out what this looks like, both what it looks like from a historical perspective, but then also what it looks like from you stepping into that space. So if you're an Asian student stepping into uh, this country, kind of do some research on what like Asian history in America looks like. And if you're an Indian student stepping into this space, let's do some research about what, you know, the Indian experience in America looks like or, or internationally, because I think when you kind of understand the space in which you navigate is who you are in this racialized country, then you're able to kind of see, okay, so this is how I can make the impact. This is how I can be effective. And then as you do your research and as you do your studies and as you do all that, bring other folks to the table. Have the conversation with other folks that look like you and then extend that conversation out to other folks that don't look like you. Then extend that conversation out to the faculty and staff that work with you. Because once you're able to do that, then you're creating that community of folks who are like-minded, having the conversations. And even if they're not like-minded, at least they're having the conversation because only when you have those talks and, and you really deep, deep, dig deep into that, then you can get that effective change. So I think it, it is both the university's responsibility to educate, but it's also the responsibility of those who are deciding to come to America to study to also be part of their own education as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I honestly, I think that from my perspective is as well is that sometimes, you know, it's like, you know, reading, reading books about, about, about the past, about history, and then reading books about how, you know, history affected who we are today. And that's, that's something really important. And also watch movies, TV shows that kind of have a lot of things that, you know, based on based on true events and then have to how that will really enrich our perception, our experience. So I have one more question before we open up the floor. So how do you think that our perception on race and our understanding on race changed from when you first started the move from, from when you were in school versus right now? Wow, that's a great question. I think I always tell people that the the creation of social media in its contemporary state has done wonders for what people can find, but it's also has created spaces where like you can really find some really dark stuff that may not be actually representative of the actual experience that people are going to. So I think growing up, for me, it was all about books, right? It was books, TV shows and all that. And then as we as I got older, it became, you know, how am I finding my information on sources via social media? And then I think as I've gotten a little older, I've actually leaned back into books a little bit more. You know, as, as you mentioned in my intro, I'm an avid reader. I always tell people during COVID that, I leaned into reading more because I realized the value of a book and what it meant. I think in 2021, I read 92 books because there was nothing else to do but read. Nobody was going anywhere. But but I really what I what I find fascinating about the written text is that it does the one thing that social media doesn't. It takes away the outside noise, right? You know, when you log into your TikTok or you log into your Snapchat or Facebook or Instagram, there's always noise. The written word takes away the noise and kind of allows you to sit with just the word. And when you sit in that quiet space with just the words on a, on a piece of paper, what it does, it allows your brain to slow down. It allows you to actually take it. It allows you to not worry about the dopamine hit that you're going to get when you get the like on your Instagram pic or all that. So taking the time to be still, be quiet, and then add a book to that, I think has been one of the things that has helped me as I've navigated this space. And, and it's something that I lean forward to even more so now that I've gotten older. I've, I've found the passion and love for reading in ways that I didn't think I would find as someone who's 39 years old in the same way that I was when I was 12. So I do think it is super important to find the thing that you like to read and then sit with that quiet book and then really dig into it. Because in that moment of quiet solitude is where you do your best work. Yeah. And also, I would like to add on to that, too, because one of my actually, one of my new resolution is to you know read a lot more 
my goal is to read a book a month, but I'm kind of falling behind right now. But at the end of the day, it's really about, you know, about persistence too. Like you can't read a whole book in one day, what, unless you really like the book, but you know, even take like 40 minutes a day, you know, just like turn everything off and then just read you know, before you go to bed. And then that persistence from like start to finish, you know, like day by day, week by week, month by month, you're going to see the progress that before you even know it, because it's only going to take 40 minutes out, out of your life. But then if you keep that persistence going on, you're going to know that, I've become so many, so much, so much more educated than I was before, just because I take this little time out of my month, but I, I kept it going. And it's just really about, you know, keep it going and just not, not, not giving up. And uh, yeah, that concludes all my questions. Anybody uh, in the stands has any questions? It looks like in the chat, Linda had a question about the, some of the most transformational books that I've read. Oh, wow. Um, I think the book that I always tell people that, that I've read in the past couple of years that really sticks out to me is Isabel Wilkerson's Cast, C-A-S-T-E. And what I really liked about that book is that it looked at race in America from a much broader lens than I thought. One of the things that she says in her book is that, you know, when when the Nazis in Germany were trying to create their platform of um, oppression against Jews, the system they looked toward was the American system of racism. So what she did with that book was that she looked at um, the concept of the caste system in India too, as a way to kind of look at race in America and ultimately came to the conclusion in her writing that America exists in a caste system. We just don't call it that, but it exists in a very similar way to the caste system in India. It it, it, it looks very similar to to the caste system that occurred during Nazi Germany. But it was one of those books that really kind of made me look at race in a very different way than, than I have. Uh, there's also some other books that I could look up and and I'll and I'll also try to find some of those. But I think Cast is a is a good start. It's a heavy read, but it's a good start. Um, I think Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow is also really good looking at mass incarceration in America and the impact on race. So there's, there's a lot of books that I that I can pull up and, I, and I'm sure I'll, I'll dig up some and send to Linda. Anybody else? Uh, I, I also had a um question. Th- thank you so much, Akim. This was so great. This was, I'm so glad that you shared all of this. And one of one of the things that you said that really resonated with me was when you talked about showing up in authenticity. That's really a hard thing to do for a lot of people. I, it was a challenge for me for many years. Um, and I know that it's a challenge for a lot of international students and a lot of young people in general. But can you just speak a little bit more about that showing up authentic, uh, uh, showing up with authenticity and how it impacts the organization? Also, you know, I know in, in, in the Black community, you know, we have code switching. You know, we mm-hmm. talk about code switching and a lot of people do it as a form of being professional. But what the difference is between being authentic and being professional and, you know, how being authentic actually adds to the institution and the diversity of an organization. Right. I think you bring up so many interesting points. To me, I had to learn that when I entered spaces, if I wasn't as authentic as I could be in those spaces, then those spaces were not getting my best work and also my best presence. So, you know, sometimes you walk into the space and you're like, oh, I have to do the thing in order to get to this level in that space to make the proper connections. I'm always like, listen, whoever you are is more valuable than who you want to be, right? You want to be the thing, but who you are at that time is the most important part of who you are. Over time, you can kind of figure out how to get to the thing. But if you enter spaces not being who you are, then that is literally the thing that will suck your soul dry at the end of the day. Because what you'll be doing in those spaces that you'll be 
putting on an act. And one of the hardest things I think to do both professionally and personally is always have to live like you're putting on an act. So for me, the way it looks is that I'm always also mindful of if I'm authentic in who I am, then other people can be authentic in who they are too. And it could be as simple as some days not wearing professional attire, right? Like some days I'll come to work in jeans and a shirt. And that to me is my, my being authentic in that space. That does not take anything away from my professionalism. In fact, I think it adds to my professionalism because it allows people to see that you can be who you are and it doesn't matter what you wear. It's who you are. It doesn't matter how you talk. It's who you are. So I always tell people, figure out who you are and step into those spaces. But there is a caveat. You have to be mindful of the space that you're in. If you're in a corporate office and the corporate attire is is ties, shoes, shoes and dress pants, and you come in and you're not in that, you have to be able to understand that some people are going to push back against that. So you have to be think mindful of the spaces that you're entering. Are you going to be comfortable in those spaces? And if you think you are, then figure out ways to be who you are in, in that space. Because I think when you're authentic to who you are, I think the biggest value is that other people who may not have felt that they could be authentically who they are could feel more empowered to do that. So that's the way I look at it. It's not just about me. To me, I think it's about the others around me to feel that, hey, be who you are, because who you are is what God intended. And who you are is the most beautiful aspect of your personality and your presence at that time. Absolutely. Thank you. Yep. I think it's a great point to wrap this session up. Thank you so much, Akeem. Honestly, thanks for sharing your story with us today. It's beautiful. And on behalf of the whole SCS events committee, I want to thank you, everyone, for coming and joining us today. I do want to invite you to our next high event. It'll be held on March 9th at 12 p.m. And we have Pierre DeVoice sharing his story on that day. And again, thank you all. Thank you to Akim, and join us next week with Pierre Gerbois. The SPS Replay podcast is produced by the students of the SPS Student Council with Allie Weaver, Christine Long, Kyle Ronkin, Megan Vanesto, Nick Fan, Tatan Gangwal, Anvi Rohila, Vanshika Chaturvedi, Sebastian Richardson. Special thanks to the NYU SPS Office of Student Life, and make sure to follow us on social media at SPSUSC and at SPSGSC for more updates and content. Thank you so much for listening, and see you next time.